Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Pamela Brown in for Jake Tapper. And we begin with breaking news. Minutes ago, President Trump took another stunning step as he upends Washington in his final 28 days in office. President Trump vetoed the National Defense Authorization Act, which passed Congress with wide bipartisan support. This is a $740 billion defense package, and it includes pay raises for soldiers, equipment modernization, and provisions for increased cybersecurity. A version of the bill has become law for 59 years. But in this letter to Congress, President Trump claimed it is a, quote, gift to China and Russia. And it is just the latest in a series of chaotic moves by President Trump as he approaches the end of his presidency. Plus, any moment President Trump could leave for Mar-a-Lago. Though the president right now is so unpredictable, that is still possible the trip could be canceled. We will have to wait and see. The president specifically mentioned in this letter to Congress that he doesn't like that bill included, require, like the, that the bill included requiring the military to rename bases named after Confederate soldiers, writing, I have been clear in my opposition to politically motivated attempts like this to wash away history and to dishonor the immense progress our country has fought for and realizing our founding principles. I want to bring in CNN's Phil Mattingly. Uh, Phil, this was a sweeping defense bill that overwhelmingly passed the Senate and the House. What happens now? Yeah, let's contextualize first what this actually is, Pamela, and you know it quite well. This is the policy authorizing bill that essentially kind of dictates how U.S. military policy is handled. It has been passed by the United States Congress almost always with wide bipartisan margins. This was the 60th consecutive year. You have had Republicans over the course of the last several weeks and months begging President Trump not to veto this legislation. Now, the reason the president has said that he wanted to veto this legislation and since has vetoed this legislation was a couple prong. One, it was the issue of online liability, uh, Section 230, something that he's been talking about a lot. It has no application to this bill, which was frustrating for a lot of Republicans, particularly the Senate Republican Armed Services Committee Chairman Jim Inhofe, in terms of why that was supposed to be in this bill. It's not in this bill, and that was one of the reasons the president used. Another is this bill would require that name change of uh, military bases named after Confederate generals after a a period of a panel and then a number of years. The president is opposed to that as well. And then, Pamela, I think the thing that's most perplexed both Republicans and Democrats is the idea that, as the president said in his veto message, that it is a gift to Russia and China, particularly given the cyber uh, attack that is still somewhat underway with the U.S. government right now. The cyber provisions, specific China provisions especially, have been things that Republicans have both publicly and privately been trying to push to the president to make clear that this bill is the opposite of what the president thinks it is on the policy side of things. However, it never made any headway with the president, and now he has vetoed this bill, setting up a major, major challenge with Congress. All right. So is there enough support to override the president's veto? And what are your sources saying, particularly your Republican sources saying on the Hill about what's unfolding in the White House just this past 24 hours? 
Yeah, I'll, I'll take the latter first. And I think the amazing thing about what's happened over the course of the last 24 hours, I know you're going to get into it in depth in a little bit, but th the biggest takeaway right now is how little anybody knows about anything. Pamela, you know this well, covering the White House, covering the Hill, that there are back channels, there are connections. Some individual in one office knows somebody in some office in the White House. They should have a pretty good sense of what's going on, why and how. And that has almost been eliminated. There's been no guidance given to congressional offices about what's going on, what the president's thinking might be. Everybody's basically spent the last 24 hours waiting for the president to speak again. Now, as it pertains to this veto, the House and Senate were prepared for this. They have already set up the process to override the veto starting the week after Christmas. The House will vote on Monday. If the House overrides the veto, they need two-thirds support. The Senate is already teed up to do the same thing on Tuesday. The big question right now, Pamela, in the House, 335 members voted for this, well above the two-thirds threshold. However, House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy said he would not sustain, or he would work to sustain the president's veto. So how many Republicans decide to vote against the bill now is an open question in the House. However, the feeling is they will be able to override it in the House, override it in the Senate. And this would be a major, major brush back to the president in his final weeks, Pamela. Absolutely. All right, Phil Mattingly, thank you as always for breaking it down so succinctly so we can understand what is going on behind the scenes there. Now I want to bring in CNN's Boris Sanchez now from the White House. Boris, this veto is just another sunny move from the president in the last day or so. That's right, Pam. With fewer than 30 days left in his presidency, Donald Trump is refusing to go quietly. The president not only vetoing this defense bill, he's also threatening to veto that omnibus spending bill, a huge portion of which is coronavirus relief spending. Meantime, the president also issuing more than a dozen pardons, many of those pardons controversial to say the least. As President Trump prepares to leave for his holiday vacation in Florida, he's dropping bombshells on his way out the door. First, issuing more than a dozen pardons last night, with more expected today. Thank you. Many with personal links to the president himself, including two former Republican congressmen who were early supporters of Trump's presidential campaign. Duncan Hunter, who pled guilty to misusing campaign funds, and Chris Collins, who pled guilty to committing securities fraud and lying to the FBI. Trump also undoing convictions from the Mueller investigation, pardoning George Papadopoulos, the former campaign aide who pled guilty for lying to the FBI about his contacts with Russian-linked officials, and Alex van der Zwan, also convicted for lying to investigators. Also receiving clemency, four Blackwater private security operatives convicted of massacring 14 unarmed Iraqi civilians, including children, while working in Iraq for the security firm in 2007. Notably, Blackwater is owned by Eric Prince, a major Trump donor who also happens to be Education Secretary Betsy DeVos's brother. The second bombshell? It really is a disgrace. Trump threatening to veto much-needed coronavirus aid from Congress. The president uh, has indicated his intent to sign the bill. Despite his own aides promising he would sign it, Trump blindsiding White House aides and lawmakers in both parties by tweeting a video blasting a long-fought bipartisan bill to fund the government and deliver aid to workers nationwide. It's called the COVID relief bill, but it has almost nothing to do with COVID. Trump's taped address laced with falsehoods, conflating the coronavirus relief package with the government spending bill that his own negotiators agreed should be rolled into one piece of legislation. Increase the ridiculously low $600 
to $2,000 or $4,000 for a couple. Get rid of the wasteful and unnecessary items from this legislation. Trump deriding the amount of foreign aid in the bill, though the figures closely match what he requested in his own White House budget. And the president's request for more money directly to Americans, strongly opposed by most Republicans, met with support from Democrats. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi tweeting, quote, at last the president has agreed to $2,000. Let's do it. And Pamela, the president is set to leave the White House for Mar-a-Lago at any moment. We'll see if he takes questions from reporters. Very quickly, I wanted to point out the president has only five days to sign off on this spending bill before the federal government shuts down. But millions of Americans will be feeling the pain of this decision soon before that. Keep in mind, enhanced unemployment benefits tied to the last COVID package expire the day after Christmas. Pamela. I hope he takes questions so we can figure out what is going on here. As millions of Americans are concerned, they're not going to get the money they need. Thank you, Boris. Uh, now I want to bring in our panel to discuss all of this. Abby, first to you. What is going on here in your view? Well, first of all, this is a president who is in the last gasps of his presidency and has been um, in a really unpredictable mood for quite some time. But he's also facing the real prospect that Republicans on Capitol Hill are not going to do what he wants them to do. They're not going to be successful in uh, stopping the Electoral College uh, vote, which has already happened, from uh, from basically becoming official and making Joe Biden the president-elect. And I do think that he's lashing out at um, Mitch McConnell and at Republicans on Capitol Hill for that. You know, what's happening here is that he He's now thrown uncertainty into uh, this, uh, particularly the stimulus bill negotiations, by uh, by giving Nancy Pelosi something that she really wanted, and and also putting Republicans in the position of objecting to two thousand dollars in additional money for Americans. And it's not going to go through, not because Democrats don't want it; they've been pushing for that all along, but rather because Republicans will object in the House, and it's very unlikely that Mitch McConnell will take something like that up in the Senate. So again. President Trump uh, really lashing out at people who are not towing the line when it comes to the one thing that seems to matter to him, which is uh, the, the, the idea that he might have some success somehow in overturning the results of this election. Yeah, Olivia, as Abby just laid out there, he's really throwing congressional Republicans under the bus by making the, these moves and, and putting them in a tough spot here. You've got to wonder what the two Republican candidates in those Georgia runoff mm-hmm. elections are thinking right now. You know, they towed the line pretty well with what used to be the White House position and what was certainly the Republican Senate caucus's position. They're now in the position of having to uh, answer to voters there for the infighting up here and the divisions where, you know, as Abby pointed out, you know, you've got Nancy Pelosi saying $2,000 checks sounds great. Let's do it. And Democrats have consistently been pushing for for more money. So you've got to wonder what they're what they're thinking. Um, you have to wonder, to Phil's point earlier, you have to wonder what they're thinking just generally about what this White House is doing in its final days. The NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, for instance, a shocker, and in part a shocker because uh, even if we sort of understand the argument about renaming military bases currently named for uh, traitors, the Section 230 part is absolutely baffling. No part of his explanation of that section makes any sense. Yeah, so that that was what he wanted um, in exchange. So we're seeing all of this play out, and when you look at the list of his grievances, Abby, over the stimulus bill, 
listing off money for foreign countries and other programs. Those are part of the larger spending bill, and much of it mirrors what President Trump proposed in his own budget. Look at this right here on your screen. Trump is complaining of $1.3 billion for Egypt, which is exactly what he proposed, $134 million to Burma. Trump proposed $131 million and $85 million to Cambodia compared to the $83 million he requested. The list goes on. The White House knew what was in this bill. Apparently, President Trump did not, I guess. I mean, does this just underscore to you how uninvolved he has been? It, yes, it underscores how uninvolved he has been. It also underscores how small the president's circle is becoming within the White House. He has iced out a lot of people who might be more knowledgeable, but perhaps who he finds to be not loyal enough. And instead, he's listening to people like his social media director, Dan Scavino, who, um, you know, is on the Internet seeing a lot of this stuff that originated in social media memes. That's where a lot of this came from, this idea that the stimulus bill was somehow Packed with uh, foreign aid uh, was all swimming around in conservative circles online, and then suddenly it ends up on President Trump's radar, and he comes to believe that that is what is in the bill, even though he's the president of the United States. He has access to all of the information, any number of aides who could tell him what's going on, uh, but that is not where his head is at right now, uh, and instead he's reacting to what he thinks uh, is going to be a problem for him with his base, which is in large part gauged not only only by what's going on on cable television, on Newsmax, OANN and Fox News, but also what's going on uh, in the sort of bowels of the Internet and Twitter. And it looks like we're going to have to continue to guess what is in his head because he did not stop to take questions uh, just a moment ago as he left the White House to go to Mar-a-Lago. Um, Carrie, we're also expecting more pardons to, to be released, to be announced by the White House. As we saw yesterday, he issued a wave of pardons, including two people involved in the Russia investigation, George Papadopoulos and Alexander Swan. What are the implications of these pardons? Well, I think we've seen um, it, it's not really surprising that what he's really trying to do with those particular pardons is he's unraveling as much as he can of the results of the special counsel's investigation. Um, so he had already issued a couple of pardons with respect to Mike Flynn and Roger Stone in that category. Um, these are two more. I think we potentially could see more. In terms of the, related to the Mueller investigation, regarding his pardons yesterday, though, I think the Blackwater Guard pardons in particular um, are ones that we can look at that really are offensive to the proper functioning of the rule of law. Um, this was in a, a, a terrible event. They were subject to prosecution. They were, after an extensive investigation, they were sentenced during the Trump administration um, in proceedings that were led by the Trump administration, Department of Justice, and U.S. Attorney's Office. Um, they were sentenced uh, by Judge Lamberth in the District of Columbia, who has himself extensive experience as a judge handling national security matters, who himself had been a JAG attorney uh, back in Vietnam and who defending soldiers. And yet he still sentenced these individuals by saying we in this country hold, I'm paraphrasing, but we hold our, our people accountable. And so those pardons in particular are just so out of the bounds and so offensive. Obviously, the president, uh, in terms of his executive authority, can do it, um, but they really are shocking. 
And when you look through the list, Olivier, of the pardons, the high-profile pardons, you see many links to the president himself or associations like Eric Prince with Blackwater um, and, of course, his GOP allies, early supporters of the president, Chris Collins and Duncan Hunter. What message does this send? Well, I think to, to, to journalists, it sends the message, boy, what's in the next batch, right? Who else is he going to pardon who's close to him? But, but generally speaking, you know, it, it puts loyalty to him above the functioning of, uh, of the rule of law. These were not complicated cases. These were not gray area cases. Um, these were actually fairly straightforward. And so he's rewarding two early supporters, essentially by, by wiping their slate clean. Uh, again, I think what it tells us is that we have to really be watching for what, what happens in the next batch. I mean, I don't want to speculate irresponsibly on, on the air here on CNN, but it does mean we have to watch really carefully because I don't think I don't think he's signaling any intention of being hemmed in by by any norm or any tradition. Right. I mean, we do know from our reporting that there will be more uh, more pardons before the president leaves office. And normally you would leave the most controversial in, in a normal administration at the very end. Um, and we still have a few weeks to go, but uh, we will have to wait and see how this unfolds. Abby Phillip, Olivier Knox, Carrie Cordero, thank you so much. Well, as Americans pack planes, look at this. Another strain found in the UK that could be even more contagious. Also, Trump keeping his promise, well, kind of. A look at border wall construction and why President-elect Biden may not be able to stop it. Turning to our health lead now, another strain of coronavirus has been detected in the United Kingdom. That is on top of the other variant found there just this week, earlier this week. Officials say that the second new strain is even more contagious. It's more terrible news before Christmas. Yesterday was the second deadliest day from COVID right here in the United States since the pandemic began, as CNN's Lucy Kafanov reports. It's a holiday gift no one wanted. The UK detecting two cases of yet another variant of COVID-19, this one originally identified in South Africa. This new variant is highly concerning because it is yet more transmissible and it appears to have mutated further than the new variant that has been discovered in the UK. Experts say the current roster of vaccines should work against it. And across the pond, the Trump administration buying 100 million more doses of Pfizer's vaccine. The more vaccine we have, the more quickly we can protect more people. Nearly 9.5 million doses distributed so far and just over one million administered. It may take months for us to get that supply. And more concerns about that new variant. It appears to be more transmissible. The director of the National Institutes of Health warns that because the U.S. doesn't have a rigorous enough surveillance system, health experts face greater obstacles when attempting to identify new variants of COVID-19. It would be surprising if it has not arrived on our shores. Despite warnings, nearly a million passengers flew through U.S. airports yesterday, a recipe for a holiday disaster. We have been saying loud and clear to the entire American people, we need to be limiting our mobility, period. Staying home is the safest bet. Cases on the rise across nine states. Nationwide, more than 195,000 new cases reported yesterday and more than 117,000 hospitalizations, yet another new record. In California, too many coronavirus patients, not enough resources. Very exhausting, you know. Um, it's really like a never-ending struggle. It's really tough right now. Southern California has run out of ICU beds. 
It's the worst I've ever seen. I've been a nurse for 40 years, and it's the worst I've ever seen. And some of the things these nurses are seeing, whether patients are dying, there's no family member, so they're holding that patient's hand, or they're on the other side of an iPad where the family's crying. And that was Lucy Kavanaugh reporting there. And joining me now to discuss all of this is the Dean of Brown University School of Public Health, Dr. Shaw. Great to see you as always. Help us understand what is going on with this newest strain. Officials are saying it's concerning because it has mutated even more than the variant found in the UK earlier this week. Walk us through what that means and how worried we should be. Yeah, so Pamela, first thing, Paul, thank you for having me on. You know, the reason we're discovering these things in the United Kingdom is because they're actually doing a really good job of sequencing the genomes of the viruses that are infecting people. We're not. So we don't actually know to what extent these mutations are also showing up on our shores. Uh, we've got to get going on that. And that's sort of point number one. Whenever you have an outbreak this large happening in the U.S., happening in Western Europe, you're going to start seeing more and more mutations. In terms of these two variants, I think we're still sorting out how much more contagious, what does it mean? Uh, I think fundamentally, the things we do to protect ourselves, we've got to keep continue doing. Uh, but we've got to learn a lot more before we make any other kind of policy actions. It's almost like, you know, you look back at the beginning of the pandemic, we were just trying to learn about COVID and we had to exercise some patients. Now we know a lot about th that initial strain, but we're learning about these new mutations as we go along. And as you point out, in the U.S., the surveillance isn't as good as other countries. So it could be here. It just we don't have the surveillance to detect it like other countries. Yesterday, you look at the numbers, Dr. Zhao. It was the second deadliest day of the pandemic. More than 323,000 Americans have lost their lives from this virus. We are close to hitting one and 1,000 Americans dying from this virus. What stories do these numbers tell? Do you have any sense of the demographics when you look at, at the death totals from yesterday, say? Yeah, I mean, 3,000, more than 3,000 Americans dying in a single day is horrific. And it is happening across the entire nation, right? So there isn't one group. I mean, we do know, obviously, that a lot of people who are dying are older, but there are young people dying as well. More likely to be uh, people of color, but plenty of people of all groups are dying. And it is really heartbreaking for this to be happening during the holiday season. Heartbreaking at any time, of course. Uh, and it's, it's devastating. And I'm still stunned that we're just not spending enough time talking about it, certainly from a policy point of view. We should have our federal and state leaders screaming up and down about how we've got to change things around, and we're not hearing from them. And given the current surge, what warning does it serve for people traveling to celebrate Christmas? Because we heard these warnings before Thanksgiving, and now we see the numbers. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of the infections and a lot of the people who are very sick right now and people who will be dying in the days and weeks ahead probably got infected over that Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, and I am very worried, especially since we're so close to widespread vaccine availability, very worried that people have started letting their guard down. Again, I totally understand the value of spending time in the holidays with the family. Um, what I've been asking people is if you can avoid it, please do. If you're going to do it, keep it small, wear a mask. Uh, this is not the time to let down our guard, not when we're this close to the finish line. And there is hope, as you mentioned, the vaccine that does give hope. The Trump administration announced it bought 100 million more doses of the Pfizer vaccine. 70 million doses will be delivered by the end of June. Operation Warp Speed is producing critical materials and supplies to expand vaccine production under the Defense Production Act. What does all of that mean for when we can get back to a sense of normalcy? 
Yeah, we've got to get to 70, 80% of Americans getting vaccinated before we really get this virus truly tamed and under control. Uh, I think we're going to start making some progress on, on opening things up even before then. We're still a long ways away from that. If you think about it, uh, we haven't even vaccinated 1% yet, right? It's only about a million people who've gotten the vaccine so far. So more vaccines, great. It'll, it'll move things along faster. Um, but we've got to keep plugging away at vaccinating as many people as we can uh, to begin to really get this virus under control. So it's critically important that, that people get the shot in the arm. But look at these numbers. There are more than 9.5 million vaccine doses delivered across the U.S., but there have just been over a million shots to arms, according to the CDC. Why are there just vaccines sitting there not being used right now as we speak when this is so urgent? Yeah, so first of all, it is urgent. A second is, you know, this is the last mile problem. I think Operation Warp Speed has done a very good job on lots of parts of getting vaccines out there. But there is a lot of steps between getting a vaccine delivered to a state and getting into the arms of somebody in a nursing home or a healthcare worker. A lot of work needs to go into it. A lot of resources need to go into it. Uh, Congress is still not producing. I mean, in the latest bill, they've got money for a vaccine distribution. I think that last mile didn't get as much attention as it needed. All right, Dr. Ashish Jha, always, as always, thank you so much for sharing your expertise on this. Thank you. Well, outrage and disappointment survivors of the massacre in Iraq react to President Trump's pardoning of four guards who slaughtered innocent men, women, and children. That's next. Well, President Trump's decision to pardon four American security guards involved in the infamous Blackwater massacre has horrified survivors of this 2007 incident. The guards were private military contractors with Blackwater, convicted of killing 14 of the 17 people when they opened fire in Baghdad. Two of the youngest victims were just 9 and 11 years old. One man lost his mother and his son in the killings. As CNN's Barbara Starr reports, survivors call Trump's pardons shocking and disappointing. It is one of the darkest episodes of the U.S. war in Iraq. Seventeen unarmed Iraqi civilians were shot to death in 2007 in a Baghdad traffic circle, including nine and 11-year-old boys. A team of Blackwater private security contractors later convicted in the killing of 14 of them. The group had been notified of a nearby car bomb as their convoy moved into a traffic circle. Witnesses said they then opened fire on men, women and children. President Trump last night turning the page by pardoning four of the contractors. I was absolutely disgusted to hear about the pardons uh, because uh, the work that we had done in Iraq uh, was so important, especially when it came to dealing with the local population. The full pardons went to Nicholas Slayton, who was serving a life sentence for murder. Paul Slough, Evan Liberty, and Dustin Hurd were serving sentences between 12 and 15 years for manslaughter. This is a reprehensible decision that basically throws the rule of law out the window on a presidential whim. The Iraqi foreign ministry quickly reacting, saying the president's pardons ignored the dignity of the victims and the feelings and rights of their families. Many Iraqis have long felt the incident showed Americans did not value Iraqi lives. 
Among those killed were a doctor, a used car salesman, a truck driver, a businessman, an Iraqi soldier, a gardener, a taxi driver, and an aspiring doctor taking his mother to an appointment, according to prosecutors. Getting the convictions took years. In 2009, the federal judge dismissed the case due to misuse of statement. But then-Vice President Joe Biden renewed the commitment to prosecute. A dismissal, I want to make clear, is not an acquittal. And today, I'm announcing that the United States government will appeal this decision. Now, the testimony from Iraqi witnesses at the eventual trial was truly harrowing. One saying they killed everyone. Pamela. Mm. All right, Barbara Starr, thank you for that. Now let's bring in CNN's Arwa Damon, who covered the massacre for CNN. At least 14 civilians lost their lives that day. The youngest, nine-year-old Ali, shot in the head in the back seat of the car as his father helplessly watched him die. My son was the heart of our family, Muhammad Abdul Razak says. And Arwa joins us now. Arwa, explain for our viewers just how devastating this massacre was. It was uh, absolutely gutting, Pamela. You have to remember, we're talking Baghdad 2007, so it was already a city that was wrought with violence. But on the particular day in September that this happened, the sun was out, and it seemed as if people could sort of disillusion themselves for just a little bit, that their lives weren't as wretched as they actually were. And then seemingly almost out of the blue, these bullets start flying at Al-Nusur Square. One person described it as if in an instant, the streets just turned into streets of blood. Eyewitnesses have said that you know they tried to turn their vehicles around, they tried to get away, but the bullets just kept on coming. It was an incident that devastated those who lost loved ones, those who managed to survive, but also the country as a whole. The levels of anger that existed in the aftermath of this between the Iraqi population and the American one were quite significant. There was so much tension that emerged um, between the Iraqi and the U.S. governments uh, in the wake of all of this. And Iraqis really had to wait a long time to actually get a semblance of justice. And it's, it's worth noting, too, that you know these, these security companies, the vast majority of them, they acted with impunity. Because remember back then, they had immunity. And they would just barrel through the streets, guns blazing, forcing vehicles off the road. This was hardly the first time that something like this happened. Many of them were very trigger happy with the um, company Blackwater being among the worst offenders. But this really brought a lot of anger and pain to the forefront uh, for a lot of Iraqis. And you've been talking to survivors of the massacre. What else are you hearing from them about these pardons? Well, Pamela, a number of the survivors that we've actually been talking to were ones who traveled to the U.S. to testify. And for many of them, that whole experience, especially coming seven years after the massacre took place, helped to a certain degree renew their faith in American ideals. But here's what one lawyer who was shot himself three times, whose name is Hassan Jabir Salman, had to say. He said, the American justice system is known to be a fair system, but it turns out that the, that the American justice system is not fair. 
he said it is not fair because of these pardons that took place, because President Trump pardoned murderers. Another person who we spoke to was pleading with President Trump to not release these men, to not allow them to go free, because he said they were the ones who were terrorists. There's a lot of shock today in Iraq, and in fact beyond, because of what has just taken place. A lot of, as you heard in Barbara's package there, people being reminded of something that they have felt for a very, very long time. And that is that Americans, they really just don't value Iraqi life. All right, Arwa Damon, thank you for your reporting. Well, it was one of President Trump's biggest campaign promises. Up next, a look at the mad dash to build more border wall and why President-elect Biden may not be able to stop it. Who is going to pay for the wall? Who? By the way, 100 percent. So Mexico did not end up paying for the border wall, but hundreds of miles of border wall are on track to be finished before President Trump leaves office. And despite President-elect Joe Biden's ambitions to stop construction on that, it may be costly, complex, and controversial to reverse course now. CNN's Ed Lavendera shows us why from the U.S. southern border. If you want a taste of life on the Arizona-Mexico border, Ride shotgun in Kelly Kimbrough's 1992 desert-beaten Ford pickup truck. We're not big-time ranchers. We have a couple of cattle ranches. We make a living. We love the lifestyle. It's hard to tell where the United States ends and Mexico begins on Kimbrough's 800 acres in southeast Arizona. This year, that changed. The Trump administration is carving a 19-mile wall right through this wide-open valley. What's it like to see this massive construction project on your property? We did not think it was necessary. Construction crews moved in about a year ago. This is what the wall looked like across the San Bernardino Valley in February. This is what it looks like today. Some see it as a long scar. And the American taxpayer doesn't see, they hear, build that wall, it's going to secure this country. I promise you it's never going to secure the country. Not any better than it's already secured. In the final weeks of the Trump presidency, the rush is on to finish building at least 450 miles of the border wall. Customs and Border Protection officials say at least 438 miles of that are now complete. As the coronavirus pandemic raged this year, border wall construction never stopped. For months, anti-wall activists have documented what they describe as an environmental catastrophe unfolding along the southern border. Crews blasting and bulldozing through rugged, mountainous terrain. Border Patrol officials say the new walls are vital to patrolling these remote regions. Good infrastructure buys us more time and gives us the critical seconds and minutes that we need to get to an area. But as of now, a lot has been erected and we're hoping in the future it pays off dividends. The Army Corps of Engineers says eight border wall projects have been finished with crews actively working around the clock on 37 other projects. Good evening, my fellow Americans. The question is, what happens when President-elect Joe Biden takes office? Biden has pledged he would not build another foot of border wall. There's construction that is taking place. It's going to go up this mountain. Brandon Judd leads the National Border Patrol Council. The union has been a vocal ally of President Trump. Judd says it would be foolish for Biden to stop the construction now. 
you can see that uh, that trench that goes straight up that line. Those are the footers. You know, what you're just going to throw that away? That just doesn't make any sense because now you're just throwing money down the down the toilet. You can't flat walk in anymore. Halting construction isn't enough for some anti-wall activists. Take the wall down in the areas that we needed to be taken down right away. We hiked to this border wall gate stretching the San Pedro Riverbed in Arizona with environmentalist Kate Scott. She says this construction is a deadly threat to wildlife that migrates through this area. I can tell you, we wake up, we cry, we steady ourselves and we get to work because it's been so painful for me to witness this monstrosity. But the wall also isn't being built fast enough for Jim Chilton. The international boundary. All right. Yeah. And this isn't the kind of wall you want. No. His ranch fans out across 50,000 acres in Arizona. Chilton is lobbying for a wall on this spot. He says it's a low-priority area because it's so remote, but he does have the ear of the border wall's biggest cheerleader. President Trump put Chilton in the spotlight during a rally last year. Mr. President, we need a wall. I offered the federal government 10 acres of land over here, property. my private property, to have a forward operation base. Uh, I offered it for a dollar a year. And I even told them, I'll give you the dollar if you can't find one. You've made the Border Patrol, the federal government, and an offer that you thought they couldn't refuse. They said they would study it. <laughs> that was four years ago. Chilton's ranch sits between a 25-mile gap and existing border wall, and he says it's prime terrain for drug smugglers. He's deployed hidden cameras to capture what he says are more than a thousand images of camouflage smugglers marching across his ranch. My ranch is a no-man's land. It's actually controlled by the cartel. Lakin Jordal has spent the year sounding the alarm about border wall construction in Arizona. This wall is purely political theater. It does nothing to actually stop people or drugs from crossing the border. Jordal drove us around Oregon Pipe Cactus National Monument, a breathtaking national park in the heart of the Sonoran Desert. The tranquility of the landscape is broken by the sounds of crews building more than 60 miles of wall, part of it through this national park. He calls himself a disaster tour guide. They're pulling out all the stops to rush this project through. This is all trash. Jordal used to work as a U.S. National Park Ranger at the Oregon Pipe National Monument in Arizona. He says he resigned after President Trump took office. It's really an insult to those of us who live down here. Um, we're seeing our communities ripped apart. We're seeing these ecosystems be destroyed. We don't care what you call it. Um, this thing is a disaster. If the Biden administration wants to stop building border wall, there are some issues. Funding is already allocated for another 300 miles or so, and there are construction contracts already in place. So it gets complicated. But here at the end of the Trump presidency, it's clear. Mexico did not pay for that border wall, but you cannot dispute that the Trump administration has fundamentally changed the landscape of hundreds of miles of the southern border. Pamela? That is correct. All right, Ed, thanks so much. And up next, President-elect Joe Biden today introducing another one of his cabinet picks when we might know the remaining names up next. Well, minutes ago, President Trump boarded Air Force One. He is on his way to Mar-a-Lago for the holidays. The president notably did not take any questions, even though minutes before departing, he vetoed the defense bill, which was passed with wide bipartisan support on Capitol Hill and the veto setting up yet another scramble for Congress. 
President Trump is also upending the stimulus deal his own administration negotiated. Plus, we are expecting more pardons in these chaotic final days of President Trump's presidency. And just last night, Trump issued more than a dozen pardons, many with personal links to Trump, two former Republican congressmen who were early supporters of Trump's presidential campaign, and two people convicted in the Russia investigation. And today, President-elect Joe Biden announced his pick for education secretary. Connecticut Education Commissioner and former public school teacher Miguel Cardona, who vowed to forge opportunity for students out of this pandemic. And even though Biden's cabinet is filling out, he still has five cabinet positions left to fill, including attorney general. CNN's Jessica Dean joins me now. So when are we going to hear more, Jessica, about those nominations? Well, Pam, President-elect Joe Biden had said he'd hope to fill it all out by Christmas, but obviously here we are. It is December 23rd, and we now know that those last five are going to come after the Christmas holiday. So he's got five slots less left to fill, notably CIA and also Attorney General. Of course, who's going to be leading his Department of Justice? He talked a little bit about that yesterday, making clear yet again he wants it to be very independent, uh, that he does not intend to talk to any potential nominees about the investigation into his son, Hunter Biden, and that he wants politics out of the Department of Justice. We know the two leading contenders right now are Judge Merrick Garland and Alabama Senator Doug Jones. So again, we're anticipating hearing announcements about the remainder of the cabinet after the Christmas holiday. In the meantime, Pam, you mentioned Miguel Cardona introduced today as Biden's nominee to be the Secretary of Education. Something important for a lot of families to note, he's a big proponent of getting kids back in school amidst this pandemic and doing so safely. That's That's a big priority for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris as well. They want as many schools back open in their first 100 days as possible. So they're hoping to work together to make that happen and make that a reality for so many students out there, Pam. And what about this back and forth between the Biden team and Department of Defense officials over the last 24 hours? Tell us about that. Yeah, it's been a lot of back and forth. So let's start with yesterday. We'll take you to the beginning when the president-elect uh, said that the Department of Defense had not briefed his team. He was talking about the cyber attacks, and he said that they had not briefed his team. Well, a defense, a senior defense official pushed back on that today, saying it was patently untrue, saying that they have uh, undergone uh, over 100 interviews and requests for information. Uh, this official saying more than they had originally been asked for by the Biden-Harris team. Well, Then we heard from the Biden-Harris transition team in response to that, and they said, that's just not true. They're not getting briefed on what they need to know and that there could be serious consequences come January 20th when Biden takes office if they don't continue to get that flow of information. And interesting here, there's a little bit of history as well. A few weeks ago, uh, the Biden transition team said that they had not agreed to, to a stop date. The Department of Defense, Pam, had said that it was a mutually uh, agreed upon hmm. holiday break. So a lot of back and forth here. We'll see what happens moving forward. Pam. Yeah, back and forth. But- confusing communication. I know you'll keep tracking that. Thank you so much, Jessica Dean. We appreciate it. And be sure to follow me on Twitter at Pamela Brown CNN, or of course, you can tweet the show at the lead CNN. I'm back here tomorrow at 4 p.m. Eastern, and our coverage on CNN continues right now. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.